Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. I am Christine from Nourish the Littles, and I'm joined by my co-host, Corey, from For Nutrient Sake. And today we've decided we're going to shift topics a little bit, and we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about regenerative agriculture, dairy farming, the anti-meat narrative, and female farmers, and a little bit more. And for that, we brought on two very special guests who actually reached out to us and expressed an interest in coming on our show. And so we are thrilled to welcome Natalie Kavorik and Tara Vandernusen to the show. Hi, thanks for having us on. We are excited to be on with you today, excited to cover these topics. We're really excited to have you guys. Um, all right, so we're gonna I'm going to give a quick bio and then we'll let you guys jump in and give us some more of your story because this is so exciting to be able to talk to you guys. Um, okay, so Natalie and Tara have are co-hosts of the popular podcast Discover Ag, as well as co-founders of the online course and community Elevate Ag Collectively. They, oh, excuse me, Elevate Ag, period. Collectively, they have been advocating for agriculture online on various social media platforms for over 10 years. Together, they have fostered a community of over 220,000 spoken on stages across the nation and globe and empowered a community to reconnect to the agriculture industry and um, and the hands that feed us. I love that. Um, so do you guys want to start with your stories? Like, give us a little background. How did you get here? Tell us what you're Yeah, I'll kick this about. off. So- I know. I kind of want to hear from, from each of you. So like, I want to hear from each one of you, your individual story. Perfect. So uh, this is Tara. I'll kick it off here. So I am actually a fifth generation dairy farmer and I married a fifth generation dairy farmer. (laughs) So we now dairy farm with his family and several of his brothers and their families and our two girls in Eastern New Mexico. Um, I did get my degree in environmental science and came back to the dairy to work as an environmental consultant. So I help uh, my dairy farm clients with permitting, regulation, uh, water conservation, soil health, like all of what I like to call the back end of the dairy, basically. All of those good things, that's where I um, focus on. And about seven years ago, I decided to uh, start sharing online just kind of what it was like living on a dairy farm, what I was seeing about like dairy sustainability, what dairy farmers were doing. And, um, you know, that has obviously grown and evolved. And I met Natalie along the way and we teamed up. So I'll let her jump in with kind of her story. Hi, guys. So like Tara, I grew up in agriculture. I grew up in southwest Montana on a cattle ranch there. So I know a lot of people probably immediately think Yellowstone. And there there are some similarities and there are definitely not some similarities. But I had a really great childhood, um, you know, kind of, you know, was involved in the operation growing up and um, 
just really fond memories, I guess, growing up on a ranch. But I ended up getting, like Tara, I got my degree in, well, hers is a little bit in agriculture, but mine's definitely outside. I went to school for pharmacy. And so when I graduated, I didn't return back to the ranch. I, you know, was living in a bigger city in Montana and I was practicing full-time pharmacy at a larger hospital and clinic. And I still was like in proximity close to our family ranch. And I, you know, spent a lot of time with my family there. But I just never really envisioned, you know, like living on a ranch. I definitely didn't envision working on one or having like my income drive from one. And so when I met my husband, that's kind of when things, you know, drastically almost changed for me. He was from Nebraska and and ranch down here. And so when we got married, I relocated down here. And that's kind of like I said, when things came full circle Um, through some, you know, I won't get into the details, but through different things that kind of happened since moving to Nebraska, I ended up like Tara sharing kind of our ranching and family story online which as she said, led me to connecting with her, you know, being two female advocates kind of sharing online. We were just, um, I guess, drawn towards each other and have always kind of been allies. And so, um, you know, fast forward through the time we ended up building um, our two businesses, Discover Ag and Elevate Ag, which has led us, you know, here to conversing with people like you guys. Wow, that's so cool. That uh, pharmacy is very different than... um, (laughs) you know, agriculture and all, and kind of everything that it uh, espouses. I think I saw a t-shirt once. It said, like, not, um, it said farm, not pharma. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm both. <laughs> yeah. Pharma and farm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you, how do you feel about that? Having a foot in both worlds? Yeah. So a year ago is the, I actually stepped away from pharmacy and now I just fill in. So we live pretty rural Nebraska. The town we're outside of is about 2000 people to put it in perspective for some listeners. So when I relocated, there is a critical access hospital where we live. And then there's actually two small outpatient pharmacies because I'm about an hour and a half from like a Walmart or a Target or any city that size. And so there is a lot of things within our, even though we're a small town, because we are so rural, we do have a lot of things within our small community. So I worked, um, always worked part-time when I moved at the hospital and then, um, and it's been rewarding. I, I loved my career as a pharmacist and it was hard to, to decide, you know, when we got to that point, when my husband were like, we just, you can't do it all. You know, I was spending obviously time off the ranch working at my job and then I was building and as you guys know, sharing online and, you know, building, you know, having, being an entrepreneur and building the businesses that are associated with that is a lot of time too. And then there's our operation, our ranch, which is um, a lot of work. It's my husband and I, and then one employee we have, and then obviously littles, you know, children. And so it came to a point where I had to decide. And while I love um, the healthcare setting, I love playing a role, especially in rural communities. It's really important. I think those health, not that it's not in large cities, but you know, it's just, being in a small community and offering healthcare when you know people, you know, need it um, and don't have the options or, um, I guess, um, access to it like they do in larger cities, it is, you know, fulfilling and rewarding. But ultimately, I think I was most excited about, um, you know, what Tara and I were building and what I had been building individually as a platform. So it was hard to, you know, like step out of what had been a part of my life for a long time, pharmacy. But I was pretty excited to, you know, step into full time what I had been building too. Okay, so what do you guys, um, there, you both have just dairy ranches, right? You're not, you're not, or maybe I completely don't understand the beef and dairy industry. Like they're interconnected, I'm, I assume, but is it that you have, if you have a dairy um, 
farm, then do you also have a, a beef cattle operation? Or are so you selling I'll, off your your steer? So I'll start there. So I am a dairy farmer. So our primary focus is dairy farming. So providing milk. Um, but ultimately, when a cow leaves our herd, she goes for beef, um, as well as any males on our dairy. They are raised as steers, beef cattle. And we raise some of those, but most of those go off to a cattle ranch that raises them primarily for beef. So we are beef adjacent. <laughs> we are involved okay. in the beef industry, but that is not like what, like I would not introduce myself as a cattle rancher. I definitely introduce myself as a dairy farmer. And then <laughs> Natalie is completely different. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Corey. I'm glad you asked it. Um, feel free to ask anything like that, even if you feel like it's, I don't know, silly or common knowledge or whatever, because I think anyone who's listening, if you have the question, anyone does. So like Tara said, I would consider them different industries. So Dairy cows are a very different breed, very different animal than a beef cow. And so, like I said, the ranch I grew up on was strictly beef. You will not get milk, cheese, dairy, any products from a beef cow. Um, well, obviously, they're like milking their, <laughs> they have milk, they're milking their calf. But um, for human consumption, a beef cow would not, um, absolutely not go into like dairy, cheese, any of those products. And so beef and dairy are very, like Tara said, they are involved because they have the cow you know, as the main focus, but they're very different industries as far as raising them, like the, you know, what goes into them, day-to-day -day operations, um, a beef cow and a dairy cow are very, very different. It was quite funny. Natalie came to my dairy farm for the first time last summer and <laughs> it was the first time she saw dairy cows in person, like in real life. And she was like, they're so tall and skinny. And then we went very quickly, like in the next month, we went to a cattle ranch and I saw Herefords, like I've seen Herefords out on fields, but I was like up close and I was like, they're so short and fat. <laughs> like, no wonder you thought my dairy cows were so tall and skinny. Like they are completely, yes, they're cattle, but it is shocking like the differences and just how everything about them like biologically is like different how they process food how just tons of differences um between the dairy breeds and the the cattle breeds okay I'm so glad that you brought that up because I've I've just been itching to have a conversation with a dairy farmer about dairy and the cows. And, no, and Tara is your girl then. Yeah. I'm here. No, I'm here seriously. to answer all dairy. Okay. So I'm going to preface this a little bit. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with sort of what Corey and I, uh, what the, like the world that we follow sort of where we're connected, which is the Weston A. Price Foundation. And are, are you guys familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've yeah. listened to okay. their podcast forever. I've been a consumer okay. of their cool. material for All a right. long time. So, and most of our listeners are familiar with the Weston A. Price Foundation as well. And so we're big believers in raw milk. And, you know, both of us drink raw milk. Uh, we advocate for raw milk as, as much as possible for our listeners. And within this health community world, there is a purist mentality of how cows are supposed to be raised, and especially dairy cows. And there is this belief that dairy cows should only be pastured, they should not be fed any grains, and that if they are fed grains, it needs to be organic, and they need to be fermented. And, you know, there's, like most things in life, uh, there's, very, there's various extremes to it. 
and I don't think that these extremes account for the nuance of the genetics of the cow and how long the cow has been, um, the, the history of the cow and the dairy industry here in the U.S. and, and all of that. And so I'm exceptionally excited to talk about this today because within my own Weston A. Price chapter community here in Dallas, this has been a big topic of like, well, why aren't there any dairy farmers here in Dallas that have 100% grass-fed cows? Mm-hmm. And I've had, I've had to do some research. I've had to talk to farmers about this. I've, you know, both Corey and I have a friend that uh, about two or three years ago started homesteading herself and she's, you know, learned and, and brought us along for the ride essentially. So all of that to say, I wanna start by talking a little bit about dairy cow genetics if you don't mind. And let's talk about the grass versus grain thing with dairy cows. Let's just jump in and do that. Okay. There's a lot of ground to cover there. You could cover a lot. I was like (laughs) trying to keep a mental note of like, okay, I need to touch on this. I need to touch on that. So I'll uh, get started. I want to preface it with two things. The first being Natalie and I are both big advocates for food choice, that you choose the product that at the grocery store or from your local farmer's market or wherever you choose to buy a product, food choice that works for your family, your budget and your dietary restrictions or uh, yeah, not I'm restrictions. A hundred percent with you on that, just for yeah. the record. <laughs> yeah, that's and also the second thing I'll say is I am a traditional plain old conventional dairy farmer. And actually, if you came to our dairy, and it is big. We are a big dairy. We are a big family farm. We are 100% family owned and operated. My husband, between his dad and his brothers, there is seven time um, full-time family members on the dairy as well as employees. Um, And I say all that while my backyard is close-up cows. So I think there's this big myth that big is bad or big is like corporations. And really it's that is kind of this this myth. Um, I am like I'm a hundred steps from my milking barn, um, while still being a big operation. So that's what I'll start with. Um, but then we'll get into a little bit more of the details. So I actually spent the first 25 years of my life, well, 25 years minus when I went to college, drinking raw milk. So about 21 years total drinking raw milk. And then I ultimately transitioned to pasteurized milk when I was pregnant with my first child. And it was for a lot of different reasons. Um, Personally, I ended up finding that I didn't notice a big difference between the conventional pasteurized and raw milk. Um, And I was getting the raw milk directly from my dairy. So it was still conventional raw milk. Um, But I did not think the pros outweighed the cons and just did not feel solid about it, especially during my first pregnancy. So I ultimately transitioned and we've never transitioned back. And it's really for a lot of reasons. I, um, when we were getting our milk, the way that we got it, you know, my husband would bring it, it would be a lot of times on the floorboard of his truck. And I was like, this is not okay. Do you know, like you cannot put raw milk in a container on the floorboard of your truck with like your cow manure boots. Like I'm just not okay with that ending up in my fridge. So I think if you choose to do raw milk, all of the safety things, like you would think about, like you're not going to get sushi from like a side of the road, you know, like sushi stand, right? Same thing with raw milk. You want to know your producer. You want to know where they're, you know, you want to know their cleaning practices, everything that goes into it is what I would say. The quality of their milk, like you should be able to ask for all of those things, um, safety requirements they're doing. Um, and so, and then another thing for me is we had, my kids had friends over a lot and I didn't want to make that choice for their parents. Like I remember that being an issue growing up with raw milk. My mom would, if we were having friends over, she would try to remember to buy like a gallon for like, you know, 
Allison or whoever it was was coming over that she wasn't sure if their parents were okay with it. So we ended up, you know, reasons we switched. Um, The pros for us just did not outweigh the cons. But um, going into the grass versus grain fed conversation too on that is really interesting. So we're again in New Mexico. If you've ever been to New Mexico, we do not have rolling green hills. There is not pasture for cattle. So we are 100% confined. So our cattle are in big, huge pens. They're called, it's called open lots. So it's a big pen with all of our cows in it. And then we feed them a diet that's actually planned by a nutritionist. And it is a number of different ingredients. Um, I always joke that dairy cows were the original like eat local because they eat like we provide them with food that's very local to our area. So what is in my cow's diet is not going to be the same as what is in a California cow's diet or a Florida's cow's diet. Um, You know, in Florida, they feed their cattle a lot of like citrus pulp and like a lot of what dairy cattle can eat is byproducts. So products that would otherwise end up in landfills, dairy cattle can actually eat them. So you just whatever is local to you is typically what your cattle eat. We do feed our cattle um, grain. We feed them corn. Something that surprises people about the corn conversation is we actually feed our cows silage. And Natalie does this a little bit too with some of the beef cows. But silage is where you actually chop the entire plant when it's green, leaves, stems, and the corn stalks. If you were to look at silage, it looks a little bit more like a Southwest salad. You know how like a Southwest salad's got all the green and then there's usually some corn on top. That's kind of the consistency of um, silage. And it is um, placed in bags and fermented. I know you mentioned the fermentation. So we ferment it for about a year before we feed it to our cattle. Um, so I feel like I just like, you know, <laughs> cow word vomited all over you. So I'll let you jump in there. But that's kind of some of the points you touched on and we can dive a little deeper. I, I feel like I'm taking other conversations. Sorry, Natalie and Corey. No, it's okay. Um, so that's, that's all fascinating. And I completely understand especially the part um, where you talked about like you didn't want to make that choice for your friends. I know that that's, yeah, I, I, I understand that. Um, so, but going back to the cow part, would you say that dairy cows, so I know that there's different breeds. There's the jerseys. Do you, do you have jerseys or do you have Holsteins or what, or brown Swiss. I mean, what do you have? We have almost 100% Holsteins. We recently okay. took on another herd and that the farmer that we um, was retiring, he had some brown Swiss in Jersey. So it's a little funny. You drive through our dairy now and there's the occasional random brown cow, but pretty much <laughs> it is like 99% black and whites. So the, okay. the big spots all over the place. And to your knowledge or understanding, would you say that these dairy cows, whether they're Jerseys or Holsteins or Brown Swiss, do they actually need the grains to be healthy, to be able to produce enough milk, or can dairy cows be 100% grass-fed? And I do know that you said it depends on like the location. So maybe the answer is more location uh, variant versus like cow genetic variant. Yeah, it. I do think the location is um, an interesting part. When Natalie and I were actually researching the grass-fed conversation, we uh, realized, like, this is something that I actually didn't know, is, like, you know, grass, uh, the grass quality matters a ton. So Midwest cows that are receiving grass-fed is going to be a different type of grass than, say, a California if they went through, or the wet, just anywhere out in West that maybe went through, like, a drought. That's not going to be as high of quality. So I personally 
um, believe we do a total mixed ration. So there is still grass. We do a ton of, you know, alfalfa and haze and different things. And so it is a mix of all sorts of different ingredients. And, um, like I mentioned, it's planned by a nutritionist. So I feel really confident. Our nutritionist comes out regularly and is evaluating. Um, what's really cool too about our total mixed ration is depending on how old the cow is, like what stage of life she's in, whether she's a calf or a, a dry cow or a heifer, um, however old she is, is basically what all those words mean. She gets the exact diet that is optimal for her stage of life, which I love. Um, one of the things about being like fully pasture or grass fed is, and grass fed doesn't always mean pasture. You can be grass fed and not out on pasture. Um, is you don't have as much control over knowing exactly what the cows are getting. Like, are they getting the exact amount of minerals and vitamins? Um, you know, you, you can sample that grass. Like we sample every single piece of like food component, basically ingredient that's going into our cow's diet. So we know exactly what the nutrient content is. So we can make sure they're getting that balance of like protein and carbs and fats and all of those things. I'm going to jump in really quick because I, it's, similar, but different. I want to go back to the, the, um, corn aspect you brought up too, because it will get brought up on the beef side too, of like corn. Um, when you finish your cattle with, you know, corn, corn fed or versus grass fed. And you're right. There are a lot of people who think that, you know, corn or they'll say corn isn't a natural part of a cattle's diet. They shouldn't be consuming Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, totally. Um, my husband, so again, my degree is in pharmacy. So a lot of these things I'll actually have, you know, deeper discussions with my husband about because he got his degree in animal science and then he got his master's degree in ruminant nutrition. And so he's definitely well, you know, more well-versed about this than me. We live it every day, but he had, you know, educational, you know, background in it. And lots of times when that, you know, point gets brought up, he'll kind of talk about how, um, you know, deer and elk are ruminants as well. And so they're exactly, you know, they're not exactly the same as cows. I shouldn't say that, but they're, they're all, they fall under the ruminant, you know, bison, elk, deer, you know, goats, sheep, cattle, all ruminants. Mm -hmm. And if you watch or observe a deer, you know, in its natural habitat or elk or anything like that, they will graze on corn. And it would be the same thing for cattle. Like if we didn't manage our cattle, they would go in and they would graze corn. And so I do think it is actually a natural part of their diet being a ruminant. I think it depends on how much you are feeding them. And so sometimes when we get into, you know, like the, the conventional side of things where you are feeding, you know, finishing heavier in a feedlot or whatever that is, maybe you are pushing a little bit more corn than is natural for them. But at a baseline level, I do believe that it is okay and safe for cattle to consume corn. I don't think it is not a natural part of their diet. I think as ruminants, they would consume it and they have for, you know, the ruminant species have, if we went all the way back to the times of bison, you know, they would be consuming grains as well. Is it, I, maybe this is again, me being really ignorant, but um, is soy ever a, something that people feed cattle or is that mostly like chicken and, and pork? No, there is um, soybeans as well. Soybeans is a protein source for cattle as well. Okay. And is there... that Again, it probably goes back to geographical location mm-hmm. again. Okay. So, uh, you know, for our operation, our cattle, which uh, Tara kind of touched on this, but um, skimmed over it a little bit. So I'll go a layer deeper on it. When this discussion of grain fed versus grass or, you know, finish, grain finish versus grass finish is probably the proper way to say it. I think one thing that a lot of people are forgetting about is that no matter what, 
a cow spends, and this is beef side, obviously, a cow spends over two thirds of its life on grass, on pasture with its mom. That's what the diet is, is grass and milk, you know, two thirds, again, whether it is grass finished or uh, grain finished, it's those last few months that are different. And so on our operation at the end, when we add it, you know, after they spent two thirds of their life just consuming grass, what we finish with is, um, uh, silage, which Tara talked about a little bit. It's the corn stock completely ground up. It's not just plain corn. And then we do um, hay as well as distiller's grain. So we don't, I'm not super familiar with like finishing a cattle on soy, um, even though like I am in the Midwest, but um, distiller's grain would be one of the byproducts that we use. For our listeners, can you just explain real quick the difference between a grass-fed finished cow and a grain-fed finished cow and what that would look like? Yep. So again, it's basically in the last few months. Um, so, and I guess I could maybe give a timeline of like on our operation, maybe that would help a little bit. And I'm just speaking for our ranch. So there may be an, you know, it's not a copy paste repeat. Uh, our calves are born in May. And so we will, they'll stay with the mama, um, through the summer. We run them on summer pasture. If you follow me on my Instagram, you will see us all summer long. We're in a very beautiful part of Nebraska. It's called the sand Hills. It's a very intricate ecosystem. It's really cool. Lush green rolling Hills, not what people typically think of Nebraska as, but that is where our cattle will spend summer is out at summer pasture. And they get to stay there all the way until the farmers, um, again, I'm in the Midwest, so lots of corn and soybeans around us. And one thing we get to do is graze corn stalks. So as soon as um, harvest is over, about like November-ish is when we will pull our cattle off of summer pasture and put them on corn stalks. And they get to graze corn stalks all the way through the winter. And Sorry, it's wait a minute. Of- so that means that you're like teaming with local farmers and you're taking your cows to their, that is so yep. cool. It is really cool. It's, I think, I mean, again, it's like a thing that is not just not talked about because we we're just a little bit removed from the food system. And so we're not aware of it, but yeah, that is a lot of farmers will in the winter when they can't do anything else with their corn stalks, they will have cattle come graze them. And it's, you know, it's economically a great option for us as ranchers. Um, it's great for the farmers because we have ruminants out, you know, fertilizing, um, the ground, uh, Corn stalks are actually really great uh, protein source for, I mean, it's, it works out really, really great for both the farmers and the ranchers. And so, yeah, that's what we do through the winter. And then we have a little bit of leg time where like, and this is all season dependent, right? If we have a ton of snow, we may have to supplement or, you know, do different yeah. things. And so it's all weather dependent, but for the most part, um, that's what our cattle are doing. And until it's time to finish them, when then they would get introduced that extra bit of that, that corn or the distiller's grain or whatever those, that finishing amount is. Whereas a cattle, you know, grass finished cattle is going to stay on a purely grassed, um, a grass, a forage diet. Like Tara said, maybe that's out at pasture. Maybe it still is in a feedlot setting and they're just getting the grass instead of, um, you know, the other things in their diet. But it really comes down the big difference between a grain finished cow and a uh, grass finished cow really is the last four, maybe four to six months of their life of what they are finished on and what they eat in those last few months. Okay. What is the, what is the timeline? Cause like, I mean, I've been around agriculture, but in a really small way, my whole life, um, you know, like my cousins all had beef cattle and hogs and chickens. And now we, we have a little homestead, but at this point we've only gotten chickens. Um, 
and we're hoping to get more things, but, but I've never been around it on a large scale. It's always been like, you know, two or three for a 4-H project or something. Like it's not a big deal. Um, so what, what's, what's the timeline of it? So say like the, you know, the cow for beef. Okay. So the cow is born and then they are raised for how long before they're, um, become hamburgers. I would say average. (laughs) um, I would say average is like 16 months for conventional. Okay. Uh, So the the other difference between grain finish and grass finish is that grass finish will take longer um, because they're having to get, again, like uh, that finishing method of adding in the grains or the different byproducts um, will put on weight quicker. And so that shortens the timeline. So uh, a fully grass finished, I I don't even know, Tara, do you know, is it closer to 24 months? Or I was going to say, I think it's closer to two years. It's somewhere in the, I was going to say 22 months for some reason I have that. It's around two years. It takes a little longer. That is also a difference. So so with, from what I understand, um, finishing with grain is, um, it's like how you're getting more of the fat and more the marbling, yeah. right? the marbling, the mar- instead of the, marbling. So the corn and the grain is what gives the cow the marbling. Correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's just putting on, I mean, I, I am not, a, uh, again, we also, um, our ranch works with a nutritionist to provide all the different rations and it, it will vary depending on, like Tara said, the same thing, I guess the, in this way, dairy and beef is very similar depending on the cow's life cycle, the age, the weight they're at. I mean, we will change rations during those last months all the time. It is not in our hands. I mean, my husband could do it, but he doesn't want to. So we work with the nutritionists. There, there are all across the nation. There are, that is the people's jobs that they work with ranchers and farmers to provide the diet. I mean, they're essentially like a dietitian for your cattle. So I'm not as, you know, an expert in it, but yes, essentially that will, you know, pack on the weight, the fat. Um, it just adds more of the protein than you're getting in just a strictly grass diet. Um, you know, in a quicker manner, which is, you know, again, there are pros and cons to it, right? So the pro is that we have, you know, it's a little bit more affordable, it's faster for our food system, and it helps with scale, right? So we can provide, you know, meat at a much larger scale than we would um, price-wise. But, you know, when it comes to solely grass-fed, it does have, you know, better environmental, you know, there are just pros and cons to each of them. And so... So... I feel like this flows really nicely into, can you guys talk a little bit about the difference between, nutritionally speaking, between eating a grass-fed finished cow versus a grain-fed finished cow? Do you want to touch on that? Yeah, I'll start on the milk side and then let Natalie jump in on the beef side. So there is not a significant nutritional difference between conventional, organic, and grass-fed. There is some changes with grass-fed in the omegas, that there's more omega, what is it, omega-3s in the um, grass-fed. The caveat there is that milk is not a good source of omega-3s. So even though it is like you'll see something, it'll be like, it's 10 times higher. It's like, even if it's 10 times higher, it's not a good source for omega-3s. You're better off getting that from other sources like salmon or just sources that are, it's actually a good source of that food or that nutrient. Um, and so there is minor differences, but overall, like the profile, as far as like proteins, fats, carbs, those kind of things, it is very similar nutritionally. Um, I think the more we're learning, like at the very like micronutrient level, there are some differences, 
Um, and I think that, I think there's still a lot to be studied there and a lot more research that needs to be done. And I think that's one of the things Natalie and I learned a lot about as we've been researching more, um, of seeing what the difference is nutritionally between these two products. Beef is going to be the same. Like if you're going from, um, uh, you know, macro level and a micro level, there are slight differences between, you know, grass fed and grain fed on a nutritional level, but not enough probably for a nutritionist to um, advocate for one over the other um, when it comes to just the importance of like an animal protein in your diet. Like Tara said, though, I think scientists are starting to research more into like receptors maybe and like getting down to like very, very detailed levels to see if they're, um, is maybe on a more nuanced level of difference. But when you look at those, like, um, you know, vitamin B, vitamin B, or, you know, you're just going across the board of some of the more common uh, nutrients, it is pretty similar in grass-fed versus grain-fed. Mm. What about for, for milk? Is the difference between the conventional milk and raw milk, is it simply that all of the microbes and the good bacteria in the raw milk stay because they're not being killed off by the pasteurization process. Would you say that that's the difference in, um, for like bacteria, uh, and like good microbes and stuff that would be the only difference between the two? Yeah. I mean, that is definitely like the stance raw milk, you know, advocates take is that, um, the pasteurization process is, um, obviously killing off the bad bacteria, but can also kill off some of the good bacteria. There is still quote unquote good bacteria in conventional, but you are going through that, uh, pasteurization process. And there's two different types of past. Well, there's probably more than two types, but there's two common pasteurization. There's standard pasteurization, which is heated to a certain temperature for, I mean, it's seconds. It's like two seconds. Ultra pasteurization is heated even higher. Um, it is, I want to say it's like, Oh, I I don't want to say what the difference is. I was going to say it, but I don't know exactly which it is, but it's heated much higher again for just a few seconds. uh, You know, again, this goes to like the pros and cons. It is heated higher. And so some people feel like it has a little bit different taste. um, And people obviously feel like it loses some of the quote unquote good bacteria, but it can last longer. So that is one choice. I know why some people choose the ultra filter or ultra pasteurized option is because of that longer shelf life. Um, which can be like a pro, especially if you're needing to, you know, make sure that you're not, you know, no food waste. If you're really like watching exactly how much milk and making sure you're able to consume the whole bottle before it goes bad, um, is the ultra pasteurization can be a great choice for that. There's also, isn't there, um, cold pressed? I know I've heard of this for people in, um, Australia They, they, you know, Australia, I know you guys are not in Australia, so you don't know. Their laws I'm everything. a long way from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're probably closer to Australia than I am. But um, <laughs> so in Australia, raw milk is 100% illegal. Like you cannot find it anywhere. But they have something called um, cold pressed. And it's some sort of pasteurization thing. I'm not exactly sure how it works. But it's another form of um, purifying the milk, quote unquote, um, that is, it's interesting to me. Cause it's like as close as you can get to raw milk without having raw milk, apparently, mm. according, according to people who I've talked to in Australia. <laughs> Australia is just like doing all the things in the milk thing. They were like the A2 movement. They're like, they're oh, just trying they to like, like, 
Yeah, it was New Zealand, Australia. Like it was that region that that's where A2 milk comes from or like the I, the marketing behind it. I mean, obviously A2 milk has like is not something new or something they invented, but basically the marketing of it as an actual like standalone product. Um, but that's interesting. It kind of reminds me like of the ultra filtered milk as well. So the Fair Life's, our co-op is actually the co-op behind um, Fair Life originally. There was 99 dairy farms families that got together and were like, we want a milk that has, you know, more protein and less sugar. And that's the ultra filtered is it's not like a chemical process. It's literally a filtration process of taking the milk, filtering it through and taking putting like when you put the components back together, removing some of the sugar and adding more protein in. That's interesting. I've had some, so, you know, I'm, I'm in the nutrition world and I've had a few nutrition friends tell me, which this would be, I I wish that we could do some form of like actual research on this, but that ultra pasteurization actually changes the molecular structure of the proteins in the milk. And they apparently become more like 3D-like and the body is unable to recognize them. And then this is one reason why some people actually have a hard time consuming pasteurized or ultra-pasteurized milk because the body doesn't recognize these new milk proteins that are coming in. Do you have any thoughts about that? I don't. I feel like there's still, I mean, kind of going back to what Natalie said, I feel like we're just, research is really just getting to the level where we're looking at such a deeper level of all of these foods. Um, So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it kind of goes back to like the A2 thing too. There's not a ton of research out there about A2. There's a lot of claims, um, but there's not actually a lot of research or data. And so I hope that there, I mean, one thing Natalie and I talk about, if you listen to our podcast is like, we need funding for researching all these things so we can know it better. And that there's not always funding, you know, it's, it's just, that's, I feel like we probably say that at least once a week on Discover Act podcast is like, I wish we could research this. So I feel like that's going to be my quote here too. I'm sorry, but I'm going to be like, I wish we could research this. Yeah. yeah my husband and no, I were just talking about that. He was like, we need to make like roughly $5 million, $5 billion a year so that we can take all of our money and do research with it that, that nobody is doing. <laughs> well, and what's hard is if it's like funded by industry, then it kind of is like tainted research. You know, people don't want to see research that's funded by industry. And then at the same time, it's like, well, the people who care about it are the people in the industry. They want to know like all of this. And so it's like such a double-edged sword with research is you want like third-party verification, but like somebody has to care enough to put the money forth to do the research. So yeah, yeah that's really hard. Actually. Yeah. One, yeah. I, th- I believe one of the goals of the Weston A. Price Foundation in the next year or two is to send out actual samples of food to independent labs and get it tested for micronutrient levels. So that's something that I know the foundation is working on independently. But um, yeah, th- I mean, they're still very small in the grand scheme of things. Uh, so one of the research that's happening right now, and I can let Natalie jump in, is um, looking at protein quality. I, I'm so excited about what's happening in this space of like protein is not protein, like it is not created equal across the board. And that there is like a scale, there's a spectrum of how bioavailable and how high quality the protein is. And I mean, as obviously like two <laughs> beef girlies, we are excited to see like beef and milk both up there at like the top of the list as far as quality and a bioavailability. Um, but that it's re- really fascinating stuff coming out of that space. Do you mean to say they're more nutritious than cinnamon toast crunch and <laughs> Cheez-Its? We might be I saying that. I think, I think that is, a, 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 I will die on that hill actually that I will take that stand. <laughs> 
go ahead. Tell us about how nutritious protein is because Corey and I love talking about that. We like, I, our poor listeners are like, oh my gosh, these girls need to stop talking about protein, <laughs> animal protein, because I feel like that's like what we do all the time. Well, and one of the things that Tara and I like to talk about when it comes to this conversation is that I feel like as a society, we are getting focused on the sustainability, you know, aspect of our food and the industry as a whole, which I think is great. Like we do need to pay attention to that. We're at a point in, you know, society where we have to figure out how to produce food, but also in a sustainable way. But we like to talk about how it's kind of getting a little bit almost tunnel vision where we're, are we like stepping on the line of maybe like foregoing nutrition in sake, you know, in place of sustainability, especially when it comes to promoting, you know, like plant-based lifestyles and a lot of, you know, the different diets that cut out the animal proteins. It just really has me worried that we're so focused on the carbon footprint that we're really foregoing our nation's health at the cost of it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, Corey and I interviewed um, an, inov- an individual last, the last previous episode where she talked about how like SNAP and WIC benefits don't really put a lot of emphasis. WIC especially doesn't, they, WIC literally just cut all dairy benefits for breastfeeding mothers, for children, like things like that. Um, and this idea of uh they focus mostly on like beans and rice as protein options for SNAP individuals versus like actual animal proteins. And, you know, as a nutritionist, I know that that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, animal protein is your most bioavailable form of protein. Uh, And, you know, it's just so sad to see that the anti-meat narrative is growing larger and larger and larger. I mean, I can't turn around I mean, I can't, (laughs) I, you know, anytime I turn around, that's what I'm going to say. Anytime I turn around, I've got someone telling me, but why are you eating so, so much meat, animal meat? It's, it's bad for you. And what about your cholesterol levels? And, you know, what about heart disease? And it's incredibly frustrating because it is, it's just, it's pervasive everywhere. Um, So, yeah, what do you guys want to share a little bit about the anti-meat narrative and maybe what you're both doing to combat that, whether that's individually on your ranches or, you know, combined together? Go. (laughs) You're just going to let us, free for all now, let us cover this. I love it. Um, I can start. Uh, I feel like, I actually feel like we're peaking though on this anti-meat narrative. Like, I think there has been a shift. I feel it online. I feel it. Um, I'm, that's not to say that it doesn't feel like every time I turn around also, I see something that's anti-meat, but I do feel like there is this shift we're seeing of people coming back or, or these stories of, you know, people that have been vegan for years and years coming back and saying how it wasn't good for their health, how they needed the animal protein. And that has actually made me a little bit excited, like that maybe we're all making a difference by sharing about how good animal protein is, um, and the benefits of it for us and the environment. Um, so that's kind of where I feel like I've been seeing things go. Um, but at the same, with the same breath, there's definitely tons of misinformation still out there. Yeah. Again, going back to like what Tara said a few minutes ago is that her and I will always stand for food choice. So, you know, if I think when I get concerned about vegetarian diets is this, this pro like the health concept from it. Well, and also the environmental, those are like the two pillars where I'm like, (laughs) Um, we have lots to talk about if that's why you're choosing, you know, those 
that diet for those reasons. But I did just hear a podcast between two medical professionals and they were actually talking about how, you know, they were two vegans themselves, two doctors, and they were talking about the the podcast was actually promoting how much protein, uh, vegan and vegetarian, they need to supplement and they need to be attention to it. So it was rewarding to hear that even if maybe people are choosing that lifestyle, that maybe more awareness will be brought around the focus that they need to be having on the protein aspect of their diet, along with like supplementation of a couple other things that those diets are missing out on. Um, cause like Tara said, I do, you know, we're at this weird apex part where I feel like, um, we're making gains on the anti-meat narrative, but at the same time, like all my Twitter page, I'll post something and it'll always be like, um, you know, we don't need animal proteins. That's a fault. You know, I've been vegan for this many years and I don't need, and it, I just wish there was more awareness around, you know, that, I guess the health, um, the supplementation that needs to play place for that diet. Because again, we'll, we stand for food choice. I just, sometimes I'm afraid people are stepping into diets or lifestyle changes without actually understanding, you know, the full, um, what it entails or the full scope of those choices, um, which goes to, you know, you kind of mentioned like the environmental side of it. There are stats out there that show that if everyone cut meat from their diets as a, you know, a nation, if we did that, we would only decrease our carbon footprint by 2.6%. So again, going back to like, is it really worth it? Right? Like, okay, we all cut meat, um, which that doesn't even get into like, okay, then what happens, you know, to all the good things that cattle are doing, which is what Tara and I like to talk about. But let's say we did that. We cut meat. Okay. So our global footprint is now down by 2.6%. But now we're putting things into our diet where we're not getting animal protein. Like you said, we're also filling it with, you know, the cereal and the grains and all the other unhealthy things. It's like, I think we would just become a nation that is more calorie dense and nutrient less. And so again, people who want to make that lifestyle change, um, for the better of the environment, I just wish they knew all those minor details and then was like, okay, go forth and now make the decision. If you still want to choose to eat that way, fine, but understand that like, you're not really saving the planet. There's also health risks that come from it. Like you need to be paying attention to the protein supplementation, the vitamin B12, like all of those things that, you know, are lacking if you're not getting that really good animal protein. Yeah. Natalie mentioned the 2.6%. One of the things we've talked a little bit about is cattle eating like byproducts. Natalie talked about cattle grazing on corn, leftover corn stalks. I've talked about some things we could get into more, but a lot of what our cows eat are um, on our dairy is byproducts. And uh, we learned this really great statistic recently that if those byproducts weren't fed to cattle and let's say best case scenario, they, they were composted instead of going to cattle, it would actually increase the carbon footprint of those products by five times. If it didn't go to compost and actually went to a landfill, which is the most likely scenario, it would increase the carbon footprint, carbon footprint by 49 times. So almost 50 times as much of a carbon footprint. And so those are some of the things that we're like, we're not talking like a nutrition side for humans, but also what cattle can do as far as, you know, since they are ruminant animals, they can consume things we can't and really help us out there that these products would otherwise go to waste. And instead they get upcycled into a really nutrient dense product that we can consume. Yeah. There's a lot of focus on like decreasing carbon and methane from cattle, but then it's like, okay, like Tara just said, we're going to like, there's just not a lot of discussion about the ripple effects, what happen after like we decrease carbon and methane in cattle short term. What's that mean for other industries? Like what does long-term effect look like of that? You know, it, it's just, it's a very short-sighted conversation we're having right now around cattle and environment. Okay. So I'm, this might be a little bit, um, strange of a question, but 
I'm curious what you guys think about um, sort of the non-meat, non-dairy byproducts of cattle. You know, we've got so um, there's a lot that comes from from I guess slaughtering an animal that is not necessarily used. And I'm wondering if you guys have any insight on um, what gets what happens with like the hide or the I don't know what are the other parts. All of the organs, are, I guess, are not highly valued in our culture, unfortunately. Um, what happens with all? What happens with all of the parts? Do you have any oh, information? Man, just, or is this like so way off topic? You just hit Natalie's like favorite topic. I, I don't oh, cool. know. I wish people could see her. Like I can just see her lighten up over there, getting ready to answer this one. <laughs> I, okay, so this is seriously one of those things where I'm like, if you because we've you know bought whole cattle or half cattle or pigs. Um, and this last time that we just moved, so we we just found a new farmer and we bought the a half of a, um, of a steer from him. And when I'm talking to him, I'm like, hey, I want all of the organs. I want the head. I want um, the, the trotter or not trotters. That's for, that's for um, pigs, but whatever the hooves, like, give me all the things. And he's like, are you kidding me? Like you want all that? And I'm like, no, hundred percent. Give me all the things and don't show up my, at my house without these things. So I know that, you know, most people are not asking for those things, especially if, if you're in a large operation, you know, I was going with a local guy who only has maybe 50 head of cattle. Um, so he's able to, to kind of do whatever his customers want. But if you're just sending them off to a slaughterhouse or whatever that's, you know, processing 500 or I don't even know how many is a normal group going from your ranch. But um, yeah, can we talk about that for a minute? Yeah, so you're right. It Unfortunately, you know, not all of the animal is valued in the, you know, American Western culture. Um, that is something we export a lot of is like those tongues, you know, the different things that our society would kind of be squeamish at Christine's you know, favorite or other, <laughs> or other societies. Yeah. Exporting tongue. What? I know. Exported um, to Christine's house. You're right. <laughs> She'll just have just a freezer. <laughs> like they can just send it here. Um, but yeah. you guys are right. I mean, I consume, I would argue almost seven days a week, we have animal protein on our plate, if not once, um, twice. Like I try and start my day with a, you know, some form of meat and eggs. And then we obviously have for our dinner, it is built around an animal protein. So I am consuming a lot of animal protein and I still supplement my diet. It's the one um, supplement that I take is a beef liver capsule because, um, you know, we, I would love to get into grinding our beef with liver so that you have that meld in your ground beef. Um, it's, you know, we do have a local guy. I don't know if he'd actually do it for me. Cause I, you know, it's just right. It's just an excess thing that they're not doing for everyone. I wish it was, I wish you could buy your ground beef with like the liver in it. So you're getting that nutrient and then not, you know, tasting it, but um, it's so nutrient dense, some of those other things. And so, yeah, it, it's really important. I don't think that they're consumed as highly as they should be in the U S but luckily we are seeing a trend in like the supplement form of it for people that want to consume it. The other thing that, uh, kind of to jump a little bit, but not totally. I mean, when you brought up bride products of the animals, my mind also went to, um, what cattle are used for that is not often talked about besides just meat or milk. Um, you know, 
And again, going back to like the anti-meat narrative of like wanting to get rid of animals, it's like the byproducts that are coming from animals include being used in medicine. You know, it's used in like air filters. It's used in crayons. Like there are so many things that the animal goes into that people aren't aware of that when I'm like, okay, you want to get rid of cows, then you're going to have to say goodbye to a big old laundry list of very, very important things that um, we use byproducts of animal from you know, in our society, like every day, you're not really aware of what the cattle industry is touching. Wait, cows are used in crayons. Yeah. Cows are used. There is not a piece of the cow that I feel like goes to quote unquote waste. It is unbelievable when you really get into how many products. Um, I read recently that there's something in toothbrushes that makes it like flexible to brush Mm -hmm. your teeth that comes from cattle. Um, Glues. I mean, there's Count, there's literally thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of products that have animal, different pieces of the animal in them that it has nothing to do with the meat or the milk, like Natalie said. It is really like woven into so many pieces of our lives of products that we just like don't even know that it's there. Okay. See, this makes me feel a lot better because I'm, yeah. you know, in my imagination, um, in my um, not knowing anything about the cattle industry, you know, I'm imagining that the butcher is just like, well, mm, here's the stuff we don't want, just throw it away. But it's it's not like that's not what's happening. Well, there is a concern. We have a friend that uh, she's out of Montana and she does sheep and beef. And, you know, as our society is shifting to this, you know, um, fast fashion kind of um, and just, you know, cheaper options. Um, you know, I think there is a problem with hides maybe to a point, um, you know, people aren't wanting to pay for leather as much anymore. And so we're exporting a lot of our leather or a lot of our hides are being exported to other countries, Mm -hmm. um, as well. I don't think there is waste going on, but I think there is, I think that's why we see the importation and exportation we do see of, you know, I guess the beef industry is because of, you know, Americans consumers habits of what we're choosing to spend our on our money on what we don't want to spend money on how quickly we want something, you know, and so I think that dictates a lot of the importation exportation. And so we're shipping out some of that stuff that we could be retaining locally, or nationwide and using here instead. Um, but you know, people don't want to eat it, or they don't want to pay for it, or they don't, you know, it's just it's our consumer habits. Yeah. On that note, so we have a cheese plant. That's where our milk goes. It all gets turned into cheese. And um, obviously when you produce cheese, you end up with a lot of whey. Whey is a byproduct from making cheese. And um, we actually feed a lot of it back to our cattle as a protein source because they have an excess of it. But now there is a consumer like trend that's changing that people want whey protein. They want animal protein in their protein shakes. And so now there is starting to be more of a market. And so I think it goes to like us valuing these animal sources like we need to place a higher value on like that it would be great if we could get back to authentic leather instead of you know pleather and all of these things just when we place value on it it does improve like our food system and and kind of the sustainability side of things as well versus us you know exporting it or like whey there's no reason like if we could incorporate whey into things instead of it going to cattle feed I mean we love to feed it don't get me wrong we'll take the, the whey but it would be great if there was you know more consumer demand for those those kind of animal products. Okay, wait, I have a question about this too, because so this idea of um, exporting some of these products that you're saying, because we as consumers are not value, valuing it, would you say that a consumer or, you know, groups of consumers or just, you know, US as a whole, if 
we started asking USDA processors more for these organ meats, could we somehow change some of these policies that say, no, I'm sorry, you can't have the tripe. So like, for example, like, you know, I can't get the tripe from my farmer, even though that's his cow, I've paid for it. Why can't I get the parts of that animal that I want? And, and he's being told from the processor, well, it's just too complicated. It's uh, laborious. It's, you know, whatever. So what do consumers need to do to start actually making a change in the processing so that we can have access to some of these uh, less than popular cuts? Uh, yeah. What would you guys say? Yeah, I think that it, it does have to be like a consumer driven thing. Like I, um, I, I love to use the example of, I don't know if you guys remember when the, um, uh, pasta, the feta pasta recipe went like viral on TikTok. Do you guys remember that? And it like, you literally could not go to a grocery store and buy feta because it went so crazy. People were buying feta. You could like see it on the grass. We got shown it through our co-op, like how it spiked, um, feta sales. And so I like to use that as an example that like consumers hold more power than they think. Like if you were to, if there was a movement to say, we want more of this. Absolutely. I think if I had to guess those processors don't want to process it because they already have like a system in place, right? Like it's already going someplace else to stop and give it to one person is super laborious. But if they were able to say like, you know, we have a, like a movement of more people wanting this, if there's a market for it, I, like farmers are good, really great at something. They are really great at delivering to consumers what they want, what consumers ask for. We all like, I think that's probably at the core of kind of like what we do with our products is what are consumers wanting and how can we deliver that to them? Um, but there has to be that shift then, you know, there has to be like that movement of enough people to make it worth like changing something in our food system because our food system, while I think it is a really great and secure food system, it is not super like dynamic. It does not change easily. Um, there has to be enough of like a headwind to move it. Nat, anything you want to add to that? No. I mean, it is uh, challenging, you know, and this is the tough spot when it comes to, like Tara said, our food industry in America, right? We're very fortunate to even sit around and have conversations like this because we do get to like be nitpicky and have choices over our food system. You know, not every nation is that. Some of them are, you know, food insecure and they're having more basic conversations where we get to sit around and, you know, talk about grass fed versus grass finished. And, you know, we do have a very... Um, again, it's a safe, affordable and abundant food system in America. But if you want to get down to molecular levels of it, of some of the things that we could be, I mean, there's a lot of improvements we could make to the food system. It's just hard to do. And it, it's hard from, you know, us as a producer standpoint, it's hard from the consumer standpoint, like everyone kind of feels like their hands are tied a little bit. And so there are these, I think, corners you get backed into where you want to make these changes and you could see that the changes would be good. It's just, it's a pretty hard path to walk down. Mm. And then one more question on this subject, which is just, I've heard a rumor, and I don't know how true this is, so I'm wondering if you guys know it, but that the U.S., a lot of U.S. meat is not actually from the U.S. So what happens is, apparently, and I could be getting this wrong, but it's maybe slaughtered here, then packaged overseas, and then like imported back into the U.S. And so some of the meat that we think is actually from the U.S. is not. It's from like China or um, other parts of the world. And maybe this has nothing to do with beef. Maybe this is more like chicken or pork. But yeah, I'm wondering about that. So a couple things. I'm glad you really touched on the different 
uh, protein sectors because again, um, people like to lump uh, beef, chicken, and pork, like all the animal proteins together. And from a production side, it is very, 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 very different. And so that's something we haven't even talked about. And usually I touch on that because I'm pretty passionate about showing how different, again, uh, you know, beef from pasture to plate is than maybe some of the other proteins. As far as importation and exportation of beef, um, and I'll kind of let Tara touch on this too, but we are the nation, like we are the top producing, I believe as of 2022, according to USDA, we were the number one producers in beef. So we, we do import a ton. I think we were like the second nation, largest nation to import, but it is not because we're not producing our own beef. What we import a lot is uh, leaner trimmings from other nations to uh, mix with our ground beef. Okay. So again, going back to our conversation where a lot of beef in the U S is finished with grain or corn, um, or whatever, you know, that those byproducts are, um, that makes a, for when it comes to beef or the ground beef part, it makes it a little bit more fattier. Right. And so we'll take trimmings from other nations and mix it into our ground beef. Um, so that you have that, um, you know, less, fat, I guess, consistency. Um, a lot of it is, um, I believe like Canada and Mexico, because that's who we're set up with from like a trade standpoint. Um, we also import a ton of our grass fed. Um, I think Tara has a statistic of how many, I don't know off the top of my head, but again, us as a nation, we don't have a, we have a lot of people doing grass fed. Um, I would say that you could like source from maybe as like your local producer, but we don't have, I wouldn't say like our grass fed at scale is done really well. And again, a lot of that goes to like geography of where we can feasibly do that. Whereas like in Australia or New Zealand, um, that's where I believe a majority of the grass fed beef in us is from is we're importing a lot of that beef. Uh, we could also Tara, maybe you want to touch about what we talked on the podcast, um, a couple weeks ago about, cause you were asking about the labeling and there is truth to that. So we could touch on that too. Yeah. So I'll jump in a couple of things, um, a couple of statistics. So we actually import le- about 10% of our beef is imported. So it's probably not as much as you think. Um, we do import more of our grass fed as Natalie mentioned that, you know, we're not like a pasture based system. We also don't have like as much pasture, um, like New Zealand or Australia does. So that's where a lot of our grass uh, finished beef comes from. I think it's about 75% uh, is what we saw online. And it's, some of these statistics are hard to get like exactly nailed down. Um, so like Natalie said, if you're really passionate about grass finished beef, I'd actually source like a direct to consumer um, cattle rancher that is doing that. Um, and then this is a scale. So um, we import less than 1% of our eggs, like very, very few eggs. So, you know, it kind of depends on which protein source you're looking at. So um, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no. So I was going to transition over to the labeling, but if you have a question about well, that, I'm happy yeah, to so touch was, more on importing. I was just going to say really quick, this means that like if you're going to Aldi or some you know major grocery store or something and you're buying the thing that says grass fed, which you know just for the record, they're not grass finished generally, but you're buying the one that says grass fed, there's really not a, – A, it could be – um, not from the U.S., more likely not from the U.S., and then B, it's also that um, it's probably very similar nutritionally um, to just the regular ground, ground beef next to it, right? Is that – am I understanding that correctly? Right. Yes, okay. definitely. All right. If you are – 
very passionate about supporting American beef. I think it, it, it would, if you have the means um, and are in a location where you could shop direct to consumer, like buy from a local rancher or order online from a, a rancher, if you really care about consuming, supporting, like that is an important thing to you, the best is to direct to consumer because it, the labeling is very confusing. And just because it is said is a product of USA does not, like you said, it actually does not mean it is US beef. Right. Yeah, I'll jump back in here because this is where I was going to come in. We covered this on Discover Ag Podcast um, a couple of weeks ago that the labeling. Um, so if an animal is imported from, say, Brazil, which is another place where we import some of our cattle, if we import a cattle, a, a live animal into our country and it is processed in a processing plant in the United States, it can have a U.S. sticker on it. It will say like product of the U.S., even though the cattle was bred and raised in a different country. The same for if it's repackaged. So if we have, um, as Natalie said, if we get like whole cuts of something and then it is repackaged into ground beef, it can have a product of the U.S. sticker on it because it is packaged in the United States. So those labels, um, labeling is a whole nother like can of worms to get into, but uh, it is not a perfect system. Um, there's a lot of controversy around this from all sides. It is not a straightforward thing. It is not like, oh, all cattle ranchers wish it was this way and all cattle ranchers wish it wasn't this way. Like it is a very divisive um, topic about labeling. So, it's but it is called, more confusing. If anyone is listening that wants to do information on it, it's called cool. It's country of origin of labeling. You could Google that um, and do some of, you know, if you wanted to like really deep dive and learn the history, you know, cool has come into play with almost every I would say um president like every different uh political administration thank you that's the word administration um usually they have to make a decision on it a lot of it has come down to like trade agreements um other countries have like threatened to sue us if we were to change that so advocates of like who say like that's not right right like the transparency behind that is not transparent it, there's a lack thereof would be the best way to say it um so you know it, it's unfair to consumers um, but there's a, I think there's a, there's a lot, like Charlie said, there's a lot of things that come into play. Um, and if you want to do more research and understand that a little better, cause it's longstanding history, like I said, of putting it up for the, like, I think, you know, every president has had a chance to like make changes to it. And so it's just, um, it's cool. It's country of origin of labeling and it's, um, it's a very intricate, um, and kind of controversial thing. Yeah. And yeah, I think it goes into the fact that like importing and exporting at its core is not a bad thing. Like we have these systems in place because there is like benefits to them. And, you know, I know we send, you know, a lot of cheese. Our number one exporter where we send our cheese is Mexico. Um, there's amazing opportunity for, you know, U.S. farmers when we're able to export as well as import. Um, but it it's the transparency, I think, piece that gets very complicated and and like the trade agreements that get really complicated. So interesting. I didn't know any of that. Yeah, I've been ever, <laughs> ever since we have been diving into a lot more of these conversations on our podcast too, I've been kind of going down the rabbit hole of like, um, and I don't really have an answer to this, but I think all of this falls under, like Tara said, like a globalized food system versus um, like non, right? Like a more localized food system is really what a lot of these things stem down to. Um, and that is controversial too. And that, um, you know, depends on your values as a person and, um, you know, what you see the solutions to. And so 
yeah, the food system and agriculture, Tara and I, you will hear from our mouth repeatedly that people think it's pretty simple and black and white. And it is um, a very gray and complex um, industry to be a part of. There is um, it. It's we are, you know, price. I mean, there's just so many variables um, when it comes to the food industry that um, make it very, very complex. Um, and I think people think it's a little bit more straightforward than it is. I feel like that's the truth with everything. Like everything is so much more nuanced and gray and um, personal choices and or opinions and whatever. Anyway, um, okay, I think we can leave that um, a bit and and kind of transition over into um, women in farming and what that is like for you guys. I'm really curious um, about how you guys kind of involve your families in this. Cause you guys, I know Tara, you were saying that you're going to start homeschooling and Natalie, I don't know how old your kids are, but um, I guess maybe we should have asked that at the beginning of the show. Usually we ask like how old your kids are and how many kids you have, but we didn't do that. So maybe this is a good time to do that, that like base information and then um, <laughs> we can build on it. Yeah, so I have two girls. I have um, an almost nine-year-old, as she will tell you. Like, I am not allowed to say she's eight anymore. She's almost nine. And I have a just-turned-six-year-old. So the two girls. And, yes, we have decided uh, – my husband and I have decided to make the decision to go to homeschooling next year. So it will be an entirely new journey. Um, and I'm sure I will have lots of questions and learn some hard lessons along the way. But we are really excited. Both our kids – um, love being at home on the farm. It's, you know, farming is an interesting, it's a, it's a different way. It's a, it's a way of life. It's not just a job. Um, it's an integral part of our everyday that like I mentioned, like our backyard is our close-up cows. Um, and so my husband is, you know, he does all day-to-day operations on our dairy farm. And so you're just, we're excited to have them, I think at home with us on the farm, being able to like have them be integrated into that. Um, there's just times we've wanted them to be a part of different, you know, business things we're doing. And so homeschooling is, we're excited to give ourselves that option. Uh, Tara's a girl mom and I'm a boy mom. So yeah. I have, <laughs> I have three boys and they're spread out. They are, I am in a little bit of every part of life right now. So I have a teenager and then I have a toddler that is four and then I have a baby that is two. Oh, Wow. Yeah. So you're like so in our, the trenches, um, but also in everywhere. the trenches with teenagers. And <laughs> I do yeah. not envy Natalie right now at all. I'm like, I will take my nine and six year old, right? Like, I just, I'm like, I'm in the sweet spot and I just wish I could like, I wish I was closer to Natalie. I mean, she's in Nebraska. I'm in New Mexico. So we're far. I'm like, oh, I love you. I wish I could come and take one, and bring it home for the day. Yeah, it is. It is interesting um, being I guess, involved in your child's life in such varying points. I think it has been um, a blessing and a benefit in a lot of ways. It's, um, I think it's made my oldest, um, he's more caring, you know, he, I think being around littles has shaped him to maybe be a, like, hopefully be um, a good father, you know, one day, Uh, you know, so I think it has helped him to have that exposure to the littles. Um, I also think as a mom, it's reminded me you know, to everyone tells you it goes by so quickly, but when you're like in the trenches of and alls you have around you is littles, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Maybe. Um, <laughs> and so I think like having that reminder that like, you know, we only have a couple more years with Tad. It really has made me a different mom to my littles. Um, as I like to call the two little ones. Um, 
you know, I, I, and I also see, you know, I'm exposed to like big problems, right? So not to downplay like, uh, you know, the trenches of toddlers, but it, it's a different, <laughs> you know, it's not as um, life altering or, you know, as big as some of the things you face with um, your children as you get older. And so I think all those little things that maybe frustrated me or like what I thought was terrible the first time around mothering, you know, my older one, I think now has made me a lot more laid back with my littles. And it's, I think I'm a better little mom the second time around because I um, have just been exposed to everything already with the older that it's made me really appreciate and kind of like have a different viewpoint the second time around. The best parenting advice I got was little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. And I like, and I mean, you know, take that with a grain of salt. There's challenges with littles too, but I will say, yeah, like, I I don't know when I talk with Natalie, I'm always like, I do. I, I was like, I will be coming to you. I know soon enough asking for teenage advice, but I, I will live in my preteen years right now. Tara, are you going to homeschool your two girls yourself while also working on your business and running the dairy farm? Yeah, that's a great question. That is what we are trying to figure out. Um, I would love to find a tutor. That's what I'm in search of right now as a tutor to help me a little bit. Um, You know, I have my degree in environmental science, so I feel pretty confident in the sciences, math and sciences. I, um, with the six-year-old, she'll be going to kindergarten. I would love help with the reading side of things. That's what I would love. That has never been my strong suit. I mean, I'm an avid reader now as an adult, but that was areas I struggled with as a kid. And I I know myself well enough to know that's not the area I want to teach and parent. So I am looking for help, um, which is hard. It has been easier said than done. Um, but I'm hopeful that we, the pieces will fall in place, um, before August. Can I just say, don't stress about it. Kids learn to read when they learn to read. It's okay. If they're later on the game, by the time they get to, um, teenager years, they all kind of level out. I just went to this whole conference yeah. this weekend and like I came away feeling like, oh my gosh, there's so much more grace in this than I am like trying to give it. Yeah. And I think that's such a good point. And I think with something that we've talked about is there's just things that we're, we have a larger value on than just learning to like read, you know, like, yeah. you know, having my daughter, uh, my oldest is, wants to be a dairy cow veterinarian. I mean, like since she could talk, that's what she said she wants to be. And there would be opportunity for her to go and do vet check. We have a vet that comes on dairy once a week and does a herd health check for our cows. Like how amazing would that be that if she was home with us, like she could go do that with my husband. Um, the lessons that she could learn in that to me far outweigh the um, traditional like you know, this is what you're supposed to do when you do it, um, kind of schooling. Yeah. Yeah, I think real life schools are amazing. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I think I'm going to get Natalie talked into homeschooling maybe too. I, I, if it goes well for me, I think I might be able to convince her. No, I, I mean, Tara and I have talked about it before and I'm not against it. Um, I obviously, my oldest has done, you know, traditional schooling and just through that, I've been exposed to, again, the pros and cons, right? There's pros and cons to everything. And so, you know, looking at how we want to raise their two little, we do have a little Catholic school in town. And so we're trying that for um, our four-year-old next year. He's going to um, go to our little Catholic school, which it's pretty tiny. I think his class would be about like nine kids in it. Um, so it, it is very small and we're going to try that oh, route sweet. first. But I agree, you know, I our kids right now are with us. Um, like Since I'm not commuting off the ranch anymore, they are, or working off the ranch anymore, they are with us quite a bit. And I just... You know, the other day, our baby, Rue, he's two, and he was helping my husband, you know, bottle feed a calf. So 
he was helping, you know, holding the, the milk and, um, our, when we do a bottle calf, they, um, they love to do that. And I just kind of stepped back and I was like, wow, you know, ranch and farm kids really do get to like experience life in a way that I don't feel like other kids do. And, um, obviously when we, they still get exposed to that on the weekends or after school and stuff. But, um, you know, when we remove them to send them to normal school, I feel like I am taking away a lot of those, um, like Tara said, everyday learnings that they can just get by being with my husband and I, but, um, we also have a lot going on too. So it's about, you know, finding what's right for, I guess, you know, everyone's family and what works for them. Yeah, absolutely. Not everybody is, not everybody is supposed to homeschool. It's not the best for every parent. It's not the best for every kid. You got to do it what works best for you. Yeah. Reevaluate me in a year. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I may be singing a different tune next March. I might be like, I cannot wait until August rolls around. And I re-enroll them in school. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I feel like it's, um, you know, just giving yourself grace in all of the spaces that you choose. Yeah. Okay. So tell us kind of about, um, um, like your, how you involve your kids. I know you said you like have your, you have them helping with bottle feeding and stuff, but is there, is there stuff that they can do? I know yours are really little Natalie, so that makes it harder, but are they really involved as much as, you know, as possible? Yeah. I mean, if you follow, um, for anyone listening, if you follow on my Instagram, you'll see most days our kids are, um, you know, I mean, there's obviously things that, weather dependent or, you know, our little is still napping. And so things like that dictate our schedule a lot, but my husband is really good about like swinging in and out of the house. And so if there's something that he knows that the kids and I could go with him to do, um, we'll check cattle a lot. Cause that's easy. Like we're out in our ranger or, you know, simpler things like that. If he's out like fixing fence, we're probably not going to like sit and watch him fix, <laughs> fix fence. But, um, <laughs> I would say he's on his own for that one. Yeah, I would say like a percentage of our day. I mean, if he's driving in the tractor, we'll be with him. You know, if it's walking around or stuff in the barn, if they have to do barn work, we'll be with him. Like I would say, um, gosh, I would say over like 60% of our day is spent outside with our husband, my husband, like doing stuff. And then we're obviously like eating meals and napping in the house and stuff and early morning and late at evening will kind of like get a later start than my husband and like retire earlier than my husband. But other than that, like throughout the whole day where our kids are out there and like you said, they're young. So they're not like in charge of chores on their own, but they're definitely like bebopping around and they're witnessing like the other day we're calving right now on the ranch. And so we were down in the calving barn um, and my husband with a cow needed assistance. She needed help. And so my husband, you know, was like arm, <laughs> arm deep in a cow and my my four-year-old was just standing there like watching, you know, and I recorded him cause it was kind of funny. His face, he was just like taking it all in, you know, he wasn't like horrified. He wasn't confused. He was just really observing. Like he was just really like, Oh, like what's, you know, going on. And he was just watching. and he just stood there for tw- like probably 20 or 30 seconds and really just stood there and watched. And so they're getting exposed to things like that, you know, all day, <laughs> all day long, all week long, you know, 365 days a year. Cause, um, they are, they are with us a lot. Uh, my husband always jokes that in high school, he never had to have a curfew because he had to get up and do Saturday morning milkings. And so nothing <laughs> taught you to go to bed early than having to get up and clean the barn um, and clean out, you know, the, the the tanks that hold the milk. Essentially, he was in charge of cleaning those on Saturday morning to give the normal guy, the guy that worked the rest of the week, the weekend off. And so he's like, yep. Yeah, fixes curfew. My dad was like, I don't care what time you come home, as long as you can make it to the barn by 430. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's just funny. I feel like farm life is, um, 
it's, it's just, it's always funny to hear my dad tell, my dad tells some really great stories too, about times he stayed out too late and ultimately went straight from hanging out in high school to milking cows at 3am. You know, he had to do the, the morning shift and, uh, there's just some really great farm stories like that. And, um, all, Natalie, ours is similar. Like, I mean, our girls don't have any specific chores. I will say dairy, sometimes dairy poses, um, some challenges. Dairies are very busy. Uh, we have the milk truck leaving and coming and going. Um, there's more activity, uh, like vehicle traffic on a dairy farm than some farms or even ranches. And, um, so that is something we have to be cautious about and just making sure they're the right age to be out there and doing those things. Um, and so we're kind of still like navigating that, but, uh, I see those kind of things, you know, them being more involved on the horizon. What about, have you, has being farmers and, you know, being women been difficult at all for you? Have, how has that, um, gone for both of you? Yeah. So, you know, farming and ranching, the ag industry is definitely male dominated. I do think we're seeing like statistically a rise in females being involved, which is always, you know, great to see. I think that I come from a, I don't always like to speak for the women. Well, I never do actually (laughs) the women, you know, as a whole in the industry, because obviously, um, everyone has personal experiences that are different and, um, I don't want to downplay, any women that have faced challenges within the industry because, um, you know, they are female. I have never, you know, my dad was, he had four daughters. And so he was really great about, um, I guess he didn't really have an option, right? So it's not like he was going to treat his son different than his daughters. Cause he, he didn't have that option. It was just four girls. There were four of us. And so growing up, I never felt, you know, that difference in, you know, male versus female. Um, again, I'm a little unique because I left the industry. So it's not like I was doing internships on a ranch or farm or, you know, experiencing like a classroom study where maybe I was like a, a woman, you know, one of the few women in the classroom, you know, that it was more male dominated. You know, I didn't have that agriculture, like learning experience that I think a lot of other women in the industry maybe do. And then, you know, I obviously came back into it when I married my husband and my husband has been, you know, very supportive of whatever role I wanted on the operation, whether that was, you know, working off of it as a pharmacist or, being on it and taking along all the time where he never got a break. And so, you know, overall I've been involved, you know, we're involved locally with our, um, you know, cattlemen's organizations and I've been involved kind of at like a Nebraska state level. And I have to say, I've always felt, um, always included, like I haven't felt that bias essentially, but I have a pretty strong personality too. And so I'll insert myself in a lot of conversations or situations. And I think that obviously helps, you know, if you're a woman going into a room with a lot of men and you have a more maybe timid personality, I think that would just compound, you know, maybe the anxiety or the fear or the uncertainty you could feel um, that maybe you don't belong in that room or your voice isn't as important. And so I think it's, you know, there's just a lot of factors that go into it. Overall, yes, it is absolutely a male-dominated industry, um, but I've, I've had really good experiences being a female in, you know, an agriculture um, community. Yeah, this is such a hot topic kind of in the world of ag too. I feel like there's so many directions this conversation would go. I actually like, I don't think I would ever write, like if you, I had to fill out like, what's your occupation? Like I would not put farmer. I would put environmental consultant um, because like I feel like they, there's different roles, especially for women, you know, 
uh, there's been times in my life, and I think probably Natalie would agree, like my role has been more focused on my littles and like motherhood and taking a backseat to my career, well, not just my career, but being involved in the farm. Um, other women do not take that approach. They are absolutely, I know plenty of women who are the farmer. Their husband is not involved at all. They are the farmer. Um, you know, there's lots of farm I'm going to say farm wives who call themselves farm wives. Like they are a part of the farm, but their ultimate role is like, you know, the mother, the wife, those roles. Um, Some people take offense to that term that, you know, the farm does not have a wife. You know, you are a farmer or you are a wife of a farmer. Um, So there's so many different areas in this. Um, I personally have had like overall a really good experience being a woman in agriculture. I have sat in plenty of rooms where I'm the only woman there, especially like 10 years ago uh, when my husband and I first got married. There is a shift though happening um, that there are more and more like women being involved. Um, And that's not to say that there hasn't always been a woman involved that maybe just had a different role than what we would like traditionally think of on the farm. Um, You know, there has been though some challenges. I know a few times like that, you know, somebody came up to my husband was trying to talk to him about like lagoon management. Like, so again, the back end kind of of the dairy, we collect all of our wastewater and reuse it to uh, water our crops. And so they came and my husband had to like repeatedly tell him like, I, I absolutely know not a lot about the lagoon. You need to go talk to my wife. Like that's her job. That's her role. Um, and so there's, there's been times like that where it just not taken like as seriously. Um, but you know, I feel like probably, unfortunately, lots of people have, you know, small things like that. But overall, like overwhelmingly, I feel like when I have questions and I want to be involved, my husband is super supportive. Um, we have a more complicated like family dynamic. There's a lot of brothers involved and none of the wives are involved in agriculture on my husband's family operation at all. So there's challenges with that as well that I would love to be even more involved. Um, but there's, you know, there's family dynamics at play. Um, and so that's complicated too. So that it's a very, like, it is an onion. There are a lot of layers to the female farmer conversation. Um, but I, I think, I mean, being an ag has obviously shaped who I am today and I, I'm super thankful for that. Okay. What advice would you, um, would you give maybe young women, um, teenagers, maybe even, you know, looking to go into this industry, what would you, what would you tell them that what would you maybe suggest that they study or, um, you know, what, what advice would you give to them? So I think my advice, whether you're a young woman or a young man is, Ag is like a very exciting place. There is a lot happening in ag. There's a lot of technology. There's a lot of advancement going on. There is just so many exciting things that I'm like, I personally am excited for over the next like five to 10 years and think it's like an industry you should want to be involved in and and be a part of if if that's been like, you know, your calling and something that's been placed on you is to join ag. Um, And that the possibilities of how to get involved in ag are endless. Like I think we think of farming as just, you know, farming that you're either out raising the cattle or like have the, you know, livestock or the crops, but there's so much more that goes into it. You know, nowadays with the technology side, you know, we can have people that are computer scientists, um, obviously veterinarians. One of the cool things about animal, uh, large animal vets is it's actually a predominant women field over men. There are more women graduating with large animal vet degrees than there are men. Um, so you don't just have to be like a traditional farmer or rancher to play a piece in like agriculture. 
I think my advice for young women kind of goes back to when I was talking about like, you're probably going to find yourself in situations, rooms, meetings, you know, what conferences, whatever it is where you feel outnumbered. And just remember to like stay strong in your convictions, you know, confidence, I think is really important um, in every aspect of life. I try and really instill confidence in my children because I think it can like carry you a long way in life. And I would say the same thing for the young woman who's like interested in, and that can go for any, any young woman listening that's in like a male dominated industry, like just stand firm. Like you're an expert in your area field, you know, you deserve a spot at that table. And honestly, your voice is probably needed at that table if it's a male dominated industry. And so really like, um, assert yourself and, um, just like stay strong on those convictions that like you're in that room at that table for a reason. And I'll add one more thing on that with what Natalie said is, um, a lot of times what is your unique, what makes you unique is actually like your strongest, like point of view. Um, so as Natalie said, if it is a male dominated industry, it probably could use your voice as a woman with a different perspective, something that people have not thought of. Um, and so use that to your advantage, um, uh, and be able to showcase like how you're thinking about things differently, that's thinking in ways that haven't been thought of before. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, those two great pieces of advice. Is there anything else that you guys want to talk about or that you want to share with your listeners? Like anything else you want to touch that you really want them to know or hear? Wait, I think we um, should ask the embarrassing question one because that's going to be fun. You, you should we? Should we? Yeah. Okay. All right. I wasn't <laughs> sure if you wanted to ask that one or not, Corey. We can do it. Never mind. Backtrack. We want, um, we want you guys to share with us either an embarrassing story or um, something that you learned or yeah. Go ahead. Oh man, I hope Natalie has something off the top of her head. <laughs> She's like, no, I don't. It can be, it can be, you know, something like your kid was okay. I have one. So when I was a kid, I was, um, I grew up on a goat farm, but also a lot of my family had like hobby um, animals. Like we did 4-H and we did FFA and that kind of stuff. And I was running around at my cousin's. Actually, this was like my cousin's grandmother's house. So it wasn't my grandmother. It was my cousin's other side grandmother. And we're all running around outside. And I had these new, like brightly colored eighties pants on or nineties somewhere around there. (laughs) And, um, I was like running around and we're all playing tag and I tripped and I fell and I like my knee went straight into a cow patty. I don't know why there's a cow patty in their yard, but, um, there was, and I ruined these brand new, um, pants and all of all of my cousins and all of their cousins were like laughing at me and like making so much fun of me and it was terrible. I was like, there had no, there was no good moral to this story. Just that I ruined my <laughs> neon pants and and like why why did they have a cow in their yard? Like it was like, it was like not I know, but it was just like random in the yard. Like it wasn't like fenced in or and it was like the yard where people hang out (laughs) I will say being a farm mom of a lot of boys and I don't know maybe this is the same for moms in the city but I doubt it um our kids tend to go to the bathroom anywhere anytime because it's a lot easier (laughs) for them to and so on the farm you know when we're out wherever we are the barn or the shop or out at pasture um you know if our, our 
son has to go potty, we just say, well, you know, go potty. And so I've been put in a lot of uncomfortable, awkward situations where in public, he has taken that on ranch rule <laughs> and done it um, around other children or um, just in a place, you know, he should, we were, you brought up FFA is what made me think of it. My, we were at a, my, my oldest showed cattle. And so we were at a, affair and all of a sudden there was this big play area in the background and all of a sudden we see all these kids run out of like the playground area and we're like oh my gosh and I walk back there and it's because my son was like peeing um in the sand and so I was like (laughs) totally mortified you know all the other moms were just laughing because you know it is small rural you know Nebraska but at the same time I was like my kid is the one that sent all of the kids running out of the playground because he decided to just drop his pants and go to the bath you know go potty right there and so we had to kind of talk about you know on ranch etiquette's a little bit different than off ranch etiquette Uh, okay. I'll go with a kid farm one. So we talk with our girls a lot about where their food comes from. Like the beef, similar to Natalie, like the beef in our freezer is, you know, from our farm. Um, we, if we have cheese that we know is from our cheese plant, we talk about it. We talk about all the animals. And when my girl, um, when my oldest was little, she would go through the grocery store making animal sounds for which food she wanted us to pick out. So like, mom, we need the bacon, bacon, oink, oink, oink. We're getting the bacon from the pigs. And like, I just, there's been so many times that like, it has gone wrong and <laughs> people are like, oh, just, it was not in the right place. It was not the right time. We've been in nice restaurants that I've had children, um, balking like chickens cause they wanted chicken instead of, <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe we talk about where our food comes from a little bit too much and we need to tone it down a little bit. Um, cause it's put us in some awkward, um, awkward dinner conversations with people who maybe didn't want to know explicitly where their meal came from that night. <laughs> Christine, do you have any? I don't. I know, right? I'm trying to think. The only thing that I that comes to mind, which is probably because I was like absolutely terrified. But um, so my mother is from South America, and she's from a coastal town, and um, it was very common for us to eat crab. And they would just like a man would come after fishing the crab and would sell it to your front doorstep and then you would just like cook it and boil it in your own home. And they would release the crab in the yard (laughs) for the kids to play with. (laughs) And I remember being chased by crab like all over the yard, scared Liz, because these little guys are just, you know, following you with their claws. <laughs> and then like an hour later to sit down and eat that same animal. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's my memory. <laughs> my husband still does not like pigs because when he was younger at Easter, he got chased. They were at a, out of his grandparents' farm and he got chased by a pig. And I think it honestly like bit his pants and like, you know, like pigs ripped are a hole scary. In yeah. Pigs and are so mean. he still does not, he does not like to be around, um, what is that like yeah joel salatin always jokes about like if you were to lay down in your pig pen they would just eat you yeah oh 100 yeah Uh, the beach story made me laugh it reminded me of one of our awkward situations my youngest on the beach um tried to catch a seagull because she was telling people she wanted to eat it for dinner that's one of the awkward situations i've been put in my two-year-old has done the same not not with the seagull (laughs) but she was with her grandparents like they live we live close to the coast, but my grandparents or my parents live on the island. And it's kind of like people who have a lot of money live on the island. And not that my parents have anyway. So um, 
I didn't mean to make it sound like hoity-toity, but the, like some of their <laughs> friends are a little bit hoity-toity, okay? So they're like hanging out. And my my two-year-old, two and a half, um, saw a squirrel in the tree and she goes, look, Poppy, a squirrel. And my dad's like, yeah. And she goes, me eat that squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you got to love kids. <laughs> yep. All right. This is great, you guys. I'm so excited that we had this conversation. Thank you. I am too. Thanks yeah. for having us on. It's always fun to get around other women, you know, that care about um, and value the food, you know, the system and um, food choices and what's on our plate as much as um, Tara and I do. So it was fun sitting down with you guys. Yeah, we covered some really fun topics and I'm glad we got, we covered some very serious topics, some fun topics, and I'm glad we got to cover all of it with you guys. Um, I hope your listeners enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. And so before we go, we just like to ask, um, where can our listeners find and connect with you guys? So go ahead and each of you can share. Yeah, so if you're listening to this, you're probably a podcast enthusiast. Um, so the best place we'd love to direct you is our podcast, Discover Ag. It is once weekly. So every Thursday, Tara and I sit down, and what we do is we actually talk about trending topics in the ag and food space. So, you know, we have covered like Bill Gates investing in seaweed and China buying farmland and, um, you know, uh, lab, lab grown meat and uh, milk alternatives and, um, what's going on in like the Netherlands. I mean, honestly, if you've ever seen like a food or ag, you know, headline in the news and you've like wanted to talk more about it or, you know, go like layers deep in conversation on it, our podcast is the answer for that. Cause that's really what we do. We kind of take our two millennial female opinions and we talk about stuff going on in the food space. So find us over at discover ag, and then I'll let Tara share um, where else you guys can find us. Yeah, you can find us on Instagram at discoverag underscore. And the way we pick a lot of our um, news articles, it's actually when we get DMs from people and we see a similar like DM over and over again saying, I keep seeing this. Can you guys cover it? And so please uh, reach out to us over there. If you have questions, we're happy to answer. Or you can find us on our personal pages at well. I'm at Tara Vanerdusen and Natalie is at Natalie Kavorik. And um, yeah, and kind of all the other, you know, usual places you can find us. But those are the best best yeah. locations for if us. If you want to hang out with a rancher or a dairy farmer, head over to our personal pages because that's what it is like. It is like hanging out on the farmer ranch every day. What about the hands that feed us? That yeah. is our website for Discover Ag, thehandsthatfeedus.com. Okay. And our podcast is, all of our stuff is listed there. And then Natalie um, and I behind the scenes are actually working on a docu-series as well. So right. Discover Ag, Conversations with the Hands That Feed Us is our docu-series we're working on. Can you Perfect. tell us a little bit more about that, though? Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. We want to yeah, yeah, we just have, share a little more. Yeah, we have recorded our very first episode. Uh, we recorded it back in September. Um, every episode would basically deep dive like one single piece of our food or fiber. So actually our first episode is about cotton. So where, how, and how cotton's produced – you know, what all goes into it from a farming side of um, standpoint, as well as like in the processing side of it um, and lots of other great details. And then we would kind of do something similar with each episode. So that's kind of where we're at. Natalie, anything you want to add to that? No, we just, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun to uh, play tour guide to, um, you know, different things in the agriculture industry. Tara and I are obviously very well-versed in beef and cotton, or not cotton, beef and uh, dairy. And so it was fun to, you know, go on to another operation and kind of, take our perspective and our expertise and lens of being, you know, 
well-versed in agriculture industry, um, but also still learning alongside. So it was a lot of fun. There were things we knew and um, could have, you know, deep level conversations on. And then there were things that we, you know, we got to be the people to ask the silly questions and say like, what is, what does that mean? Or like, how does that work? And so it was, it's really fun and we're hoping to do it, um, you know, all the time. So uh, we just got to, there's a lot of behind the scenes that works into going <laughs> to get it, you know, a, something like this picked up, but um, that's our ultimate goal. And right now that's on YouTube or on your website or? We have pieces of it on the website um, and that's, yeah, our website is the best place for more information about that. So the clips that are on the website, those are just a small portion of what is the bigger episode. Yes. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Because it was only, I don't know, like maybe four minutes or five minutes I think and I was like wait I wanted to keep watching this is it (laughs) oh I'd love to hear that yeah we have a full 22 minute episode recorded and we are currently um working on pitching it talking with different production companies that would want we you know we did this on our own so now we are looking for um support and help and you know we're kind of fish out of water in the (laughs) tv world um but we are excited and hopeful that people are interested in it and want to see more so I love to hear that have you guys talked to James Connolly no, uh, I don't think so. Oh, do you yeah, know you who should. Diane? Mm-hmm. Do you know who Diana yeah. Rogers is? Oh, yes, 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 yes. We I've been on his podcast. Gosh, it was a long time ago now. Um, because he has what he has. What is his? He's a producer. He has. Yes. Um, he did the uh the Sa- documentary Sacred Cow with Sacred Diana Cow. Rogers. Thank you. Yes. You we guys should, should reach out. Yeah, yeah, we will. Thank you for that we, suggestion. He's actually sent us a couple different things, like ideas, because, you know, he's obviously also well-versed in a lot of the th- things that are going on, like in the ag and food industry. And so mm-hmm. he's actually sent us a couple articles like that would, hey, this would be like good to cover on the podcast. So, yeah, we should touch base with him. That is very good idea, Christine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right, ladies. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And um Thanks for listening. I guess that's it. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at NourishTheLittles and online at NourishTheLittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at ForNutrientSake and online at ForNutrientSake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It should not be intended as medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.